1: I'm Richard Blaze, and I'm a chef and restaurateur who has judged or competed on nearly every cooking show. And now I've found a way to judge on a podcast. On my new podcast, Food Court with Richard Blaze, amazing guests bring their food arguments to my court, and I settle them once and for all. You think ranch is better than blue cheese? Prove it. You hate pineapple on pizza? Convince me. The first season of Food Court with Richard Blaze is up, and you can subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush. Charles W. Chuck Bryant here with Noel. Say hello, Noel. Chuck. Uh, and I said say hello, Noel. Hello, Noel. <laughs> <laughs> right here in Pont City Market at our home studio in Atlanta, Georgia. And welcome to episode two of the shorter mini episodes. I think we should have probably had a name at this point. So just ignore this part. want to welcome everyone, though. Uh one thing I'm going to do at the onset of each episode is recap what you heard the week before uh, on the interview. So, um, hopefully, you heard on Friday, um, wonderful Tony Hale live at San Francisco Sketchfest. Uh, could not have gone better. It was so much fun. Big thanks to Tony Hale for that. And hope you guys enjoyed that live version. And look for more of those in the future. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hit the road quite like I do with stuff you should know. But every now and then, uh, I'm gonna try and get some shows together in some smaller rooms. It's a lot of fun. Uh This week we are going to do a few different segments. Oh, also want to preview uh upcoming Oscar show. If you aren't on the Facebook page, you might not have seen this, but I had the idea to get some recording gear, take it home with me, uh break out some wine, and sit down with my lovely wife, Emily, and do a pre-Oscar show where we kind of go over the nominees and what we're expecting and what we saw and what we liked and didn't like. And then we're going to record a post-Oscar special. So I would reckon that the Oscars are on March 4th, so the Monday before that Sunday, we'll do the pre-show. And then if all goes well, the morning after, or let's be real, the afternoon after on the next Monday, the 5th, we'll do our post-Oscars wrap-up. You guys
2: going to place bets? like, who the winner is, have your picks and then like argue about it and then Maybe. Uh,
1: see who the winner is. I doubt, there may be some arguing. Alright, cool. <laughs> it was a little let's, nervous. to get into the Pina Gris. <laughs> yeah. The, the, people seem pretty excited about this. They're like Emily plus wine plus Chuck equals fun every time. We're gonna put Ruby to bed and uh, there'll probably be dogs barking at some point, but I'm just gonna leave all that stuff in because give you a peek behind the curtain. So look forward to that, and like I said in the first uh, shorter episode, we are are calling for people on Facebook to interact here, and that's where most of these segments are coming from, and everyone's really pretty excited about all this stuff, and that makes me excited, and I can. Noel is awake, so that means he's excited. And this week we're going to do a few different segments. We're going to start off like we usually do with social studies.
2: Social studies with Charles W. Chuck Bryant.
1: So this week I put out the question: uh, What is your favorite romantic comedy? And this is a uh, romantic comedies are tough because a lot of times they wouldn't necessarily qualify as great film or great cinema. Not to get too snooty, uh, but people love them, and that's kind of what this show is about. It's not um it's it's not a snotty look at the deepest films on the planet. Sometimes they're just movies we love. And romantic comedies, you know, there's there's some good ones out there, and I'm going to go ahead and chime in with mine. And this was tough because I thought about going with some offbeat romantic comedies like this movie Happy Accidents, which is wonderful, with Vincent D'Onofrio and uh, Marissa Tomei that has a weird sci-fi angle or or on that same note, a one called Safety Not Guaranteed um, that also had a weird sort of sci-fi angle.
2: The time travel one with Aubrey Plaza? Yes. Yeah.
1: But there are romantic comedies, and I, I did love those movies. But I'm going to go super tradition here, and I'm going to throw out one of the all-time greats, When Harry Met Sally, uh, just one of the best. The great Nora Ephron just wrote the shit out of that movie, mm-hmm. one of the best romantic comedy scripts of all time, and um, just wonderfully acted by Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan and Bruno Kirby and the wonderful uh, late Carrie Fisher, just a really good Solid, solid movie. Tells a great love story. It's just sappy and sweet in all the right ways. Not seen it. Oh, another hole. Really? Yeah. Huh. Are you a little cynical with romantic comedies? Well,
2: my girlfriend is really into them, so I've kind of gotten a a little bit of schooling in rom-coms of of late. But no, they're not, they've never been something I sought out. Um, is Harold and Ma a romantic comedy? (laughs)
1: That's just,
2: uh, see, that's the problem, right? Because it's almost a term of like a, a, a derision almost, agreed. right? Agreed. Yeah. But
1: yeah, in a weird way. I think Harold and Maud is was definitely supposed to be yeah. a sort of romantic comedy. That's probably. I'm not alone in saying probably that's one of my
2: favorite movies of yeah. all time. So. Yeah,
1: Hal Ashby, the great yeah. Al Ashby. So that's mine. That's Knolls. And let's tick through some of these on Facebook. Uh, Carrie Bernstein, so I married an axe murderer. So funny and so realistic. In human neuroses and behavior, sure that counts. Stranger than fiction from Caleb Omar Elizondo, great name. A lot of people put this one. Uh, they said I love it when comedy actors play more serious roles. And Will Ferrell was amazing playing off Maggie Gyllenhaal. Agreed. Uh, a bunch of people said love. Actually, I have not seen that movie.
2: That's the one with like the signs, right? Really, no it comes, yeah. it's it's trope almost. It's so it's like he comes to the door and doesn't say anything and just holds up these signs. That say different like romantic kind of tongue in cheek oh, yeah. stuff and I forget. It's the actor that played um the main dude in Walking Dead, um what the heck's his name? He's an English actor, anyway, yeah. he's the, the, the love the interest. The sheriff, uh-huh. yeah. I can remember the actor's name? I I thought love Actually was Hugh
1: Grant. Am I thinking of He's the... in that too, but oh, this is okay. the,
2: this is the part where he he walks up to the door and like holds up these signs and there's actually a cut of it that makes it look like a horror movie. <laughs> there's a bunch of those like for different stuff, but that one's particularly good if you want to check. I love actually as a horror movie. That's a fun one. Well, I will.
1: And I know, trust me, a lot of people love this movie and I'm in the in the rare company of Noel and I neither one of us having seen it. But Trish Wallace's Love Actually when the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls were from people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. That must be a quote from the movie. No idea there was a 9-11 angle to love, actually. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Kubi, Don Kubi, koobs one of our good old friends. Uh, she says when Harry Met Sally. Rewatch it every year, and it's a perfect combination of funny and sweet. And um, The secondary characters, Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher, make the whole movie for me hilarious. Agreed, koobs Matt Jones says, Shaun of the Dead, probably more for us Brits, but the mix of horror, comedy, romance, and British pub culture was awesome. Also very quotable. Heather Miller, we had a bunch of these for Notting Hill. So uh Heather Miller says, Hugh Grant's best movie for sure. Everything feels authentic and it doesn't feel forced like most rom-coms do. Did you see that one? Nope. You don't see any romantic comedies. No, like I said, I'm kind of getting roped in more and more lately, but uh, I hear no. You. Uh, Tyler Murphy, Murph, one of, another one of our good old uh, faithful listeners, says, Sleepless in Seattle, there isn't anything more cute yet more hilarious than your kid trying to hook you up with someone by calling a radio talk show without you knowing. I have seen that. I saw that in the theater, actually. I've never seen that all the way yeah. through. That
2: was like right – and then You Got Mail was like the next the right. next one. Yeah. I saw both of those in the theater. Don't remember much about them. but
1: Well, the classic pairing of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Uh, and I, I'm going to see if I can find it. Someone, oh, here it is right here. Uh, Jason Wortham, I agree, sir. Joe versus the volcano—it's one of my favorite all-time movies, and I think one of the great underrated movies of all time. I've said it before over the years and stuff. You should know, but Jason, I totally agree. He says in part because the repeating themes, overt symbolism, and a unique com- uh, comedic tone make it much more than a run-of-the-mill rom-com. Also, because Abe Vigoda, he says, you're correct, sir, on all counts. That's great. Oh, Vanessa Lopez, also with Joe versus the volcano. Off-peak quirkiness, and Abe Vagoda. Who knew? (laughs) Abe Vagoda. All these fans. Another for Notting Hill from Carrie O'Neill. Another for When Harry Met Sally. Uh, Kelly uh, Zaliga, I believe is how you pronounce that name. Um, Joe Herndon, 500 Days of Summer. I think it accurately portrays the way some young men can literally torture themselves after they get their hearts ripped out by someone they thought were a perfect match. I like that one. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one. It's a good one. I actually worked with Mark Webb, the director of that movie. He was a music video guy, ah. and he may still be doing some of that. But uh, when I was a PA in Los Angeles, and Emily was just my friend at that point. She was a producer and produced music videos, and I worked a lot of jobs with her. And Mark, we worked on probably five or six Mark Webb jobs uh, on music videos. Cool. And then he did this movie, and we were both like, what? And then he did the Spider-Man movie, we were like, what? Yeah. So congratulations to Mark for upping your ante in your career. People give it so much shit, but I really like Garden State. I haven't seen it in years,
2: but I I quite enjoyed that when it came out. And then it just became this like trope of like hipsterdom, awfulness kind of. Yeah. yeah.
1: We may need to do a special segment on Garden State at one point because I really liked it when it came out. But I also have been a victim, I think, to the – the recategorization of that movie over yeah, the years yeah. as being awful well it also spawned the whole manic pixie dream girl trope right. which is problematic in and of itself absolutely and it's sort of a bummer you know? yeah with uh, uh for those you don't know what that is that's the sort of the notion that the the little girl in the movie and I say little girl because that's usually how it's portrayed sure is like this little little sort of pixie-esque girl who's only there to serve. The romantic whims of the man. Yeah, and to change him in some way. To yeah, call, he's some like quirky he's, way. Yeah, he's,
2: he's in the doldrums, and she lifts him up out of his sadness, and he becomes a whole person. Right, yeah. while she has not much of a character arc of yeah, her right, own. Right, exactly. So, and, yeah. and, God, we never need to hear that uh, Shins song ever again because of that movie. <laughs> New slang. It sucks, man. That was a great song. Great song.
1: I love the Shins. They're amazing. Uh, But, yeah, kind of corny when I look back on it. And, boy, Zach Braff, he's taken a beating over the years because of that movie. I kind of feel bad for him a little bit, but should I? I don't know. I mean, I thought Scrubs was
2: wonderful. I really liked that show a lot. I so never saw Scrubs. It's really fun. Yeah? It's, it's, it's really, really fun
1: show. And well, he's, he he's, a, a, new he's a talented guy. He has. A, have you seen the new one about the podcast? Oh, uh, <laughs> you posted that <laughs> yeah. and I was just like, okey doke, we have jumped. You said it. You said that our industry has officially jumped the shark. I know. <laughs> uh, if you guys haven't seen it, Zach Braff is coming out with a new show where he plays, uh, I think it's the story of Gimlet, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? Where uh, he plays a, a dude who starts his own podcast network against all odds. And it – oh, God, it looks bad. It looks really bad.
2: Fledgling rags-to-riches yeah, story of maybe. podcasting.
1: And, and it had to be Zach Braff, of oh, course. I know. Like anyone else and well, it'd still look bad no matter what. Yeah. Uh, let me see here. Does Rushmore Count? From Edwin Forrest Glenn – there's romance, and there's certainly comedy. Um, it is, a, a, in a way, not the traditional yeah. rom-com, because when you say rom-com, it definitely brings to mind certain types of things. It, it ticks the boxes a little bit but, when you have, like, a rom-com, you know? Yeah, it's sort of, I guess, Wes Anderson's version of a rom-com. Tyler Watts, I love you, man. <laughs> it can be difficult in this culture for men to have close relationships with other men. This movie shows how rewarding it can be. Uh and not care what the culture of toxic masculinity dictates. That's a good point, Tyler. And I actually like that movie. Because you can put Paul Rudd and Jason Siegel and anything, and I'll watch it. Love those dudes. All right, let me tick through a few more of these. Uh, Sweet Home Alabama from Melanie Kaufman. The relationships feel real, and there are no pointless misunderstandings to further the plot. It all seems to happen naturally. All right, I'll buy that. And we'll finish up here with Susie Susie Buttress. Pretty Woman. It's problematic now in many ways, but I still enjoy watching it for the strong character of Vivian achieving her dreams. Yeah, you know, looking at movies through the the current lens, uh, these past movies, it can be tough. Uh, A lot of movies are problematic now. Some of them don't age well. Yeah. 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 What can you do?
0: Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball.
1: All right, so that's social studies for the week. Uh, and now we will move on to a new, brand new segment called Recommended Viewing. For Recommended Viewing, what I'm going to do is go through a, a recommendation for a foreign film, a documentary, and an independent film. Because uh, I love those types of movies and not everyone does. So maybe broaden your horizons a bit. Um always looking for recommendations from you about these two. So uh, for a foreign film, which I will call Not Born in the USA, City of Lost Children, 1995, from the writing-directing team of Junot and Corot, uh, of Amelie fame. That was the movie that kind of put them on the, the mainstream map. But before Amelie in 1995, they did City of Lost Children, starring Ron Perlman and a whole host of uh, Frenchies. And it's about this creepy old guy who is aging prematurely because he can't dream any longer, so he steals. He he invents a machine where he steals the dreams of children. Have you seen it? Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's such a great. Movie. I love it. People dog on it a little bit because I mean it is kind of like a fairy
2: y kind of. Oh, yeah. You know, idealized yet dark Tim Burtony kind of thing. And I think uh-huh. some people think it's a little overwrought, but I I adore it. Yeah. And uh, Delicatessen too, which came before it. Yes. Similar quirky vibe. That yeah. they Kind of went balls to the walls with on Amelie, but like yeah, they're, yeah yeah they're fantastic. I love those guys.
1: Well, and it's funny when you see Amelie. Such a sweet story and like Delicatessen and City Bell's children were so not. Yeah, I guess what I mean is like just the
2: quirk factor that oh, yeah. like upped it through yeah, the yeah. roof for Amelie, kind of because yeah. it was all that and none of the darkness or much much less of it. Yeah. What have those guys done lately? Well they did one of the Alien movies. Oh, alien really? Resurrection. And they, they kind of split up, like I oh. think actually. There was another movie that one of them did on their own, um, about like a wartime movie. I uh-huh. can't remember what it's called now, but um, But one of them did one of the aliens,
1: right? Correct. I think it was Alien Resurrection. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Interesting. All right. So I'm going to move on. Uh, I think Noel might be looking that up, but I'm going to move on to my documentary recommendation. And this is one of my favorite documentaries of all time, if not my favorite. And it is The Great Vernon Florida, uh, from 1981. Um, Errol Morris, one of, you know, one of the best there is. And it was, I think his second documentary after Gates of Heaven. And I would recommend all Vernon uh – I'm sorry, all Arrow Morris docks. Vernon, Florida is a story of Vernon, Florida. It is this um, small town in the Florida panhandle and not on the beach. You move uh, inland from the beach on the panhandle and you get some real Florida going on there. And the whole idea of this movie was there was an insurance scam going on in this town where people were cutting off limbs – To claim insurance, like literally cutting off hands and feet so they could uh, claim insurance money. Errol Morris heard about this, went down there, and it ended up not being about that. I'm not sure. I think no one would talk about it maybe, but he ended up just being like, wow, I got to stay in this town because these people – are a, a story unto themselves.
2: Florida man cuts off limb for insurance money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Have you seen Vernon Florida? No, I just know about Florida man. Florida uh, man, Trabe, they do no. some weird shit down there. I cannot say with stronger yeah. words for you especially to see Vernon Florida yeah. as soon as you can. I will. I've only seen The the Thin Blue Line. Uh-huh. That's the only one I've seen of his. Oh, oh no, really? and Fog of War. I've seen Fog of War as well. Oh, man. Oh. Well, while we're on Errol Morrison, after Vernon Florida, fast, cheap, and out of control mm-hmm. is so – unbelievable, and what I would say you should go to second. But Vernon Florida is great. Um, anyone who's seen it, it's very slow moving, but he just does the Errol Morris thing and sets the camera up and talks to these people who, uh, I don't want to disparage them in any way, just watch it. Uh, there are a bunch of different characters from the the local sheriff to the turkey hunter uh Turkey Hunter is one of the the most beloved characters I've ever seen uh on uh, on a film screen and weirdly my friend uh Mike in real life uh, Mike Anderson ended up kind of making friends with the Turkey Hunter by calling the guy he just looked him up and called him and was going to do a little follow-up documentary on him and he he sadly passed away while they were kind of talking about this but he would play me voice messages from this dude and if you're a fan of Vernon Florida then you know to actually get uh, on the phone with The Turkey Hunter is quite a treat. So go check that out. And then finally, uh, my independent film recommendation, I'm going with one from just a few years ago called The Spectacular Now. And it is a romantic – uh it's not a romantic comedy. It's a, rom- a, rom- a romance movie Uh filmed entirely in Athens, Georgia. I remember that. I lived there actually when that was happening. I remember that. Oh, yeah. I bet mm-hmm. you did, huh? Yep. Local Athens filmmaker. Yep. Uh, his name is James Ponsult, and it starred uh, – well, it was written by Scott Neustadt, uh, Neustatter and Michael Weber, but it starred Miles Teller and Cheyenne Woodley. Uh, Brie Larson had a part. Jennifer Jason Leigh and Bob Odenkirk were great in supporting roles. But it's really just a great, great coming-of-age romance, so, so real, one of the most real movies about teenage love that I've ever seen Uh, Miles Teller plays kind of a uh, straight up party guy in his senior year um, super popular clearly has an alcohol problem even at that young age and he meets a nice girl uh, in Cheyenne Woodley um, but a different kind of nice girl and there are no tropes there are no uh, there's no schmaltz it's just really real and very sweet and I just couldn't recommend it more it's called The Spectacular Now and I'm not sure if you can stream this, but I hope you can. And you said you did not see it at all? I have not seen it. No, I just remember when it was in production and
2: uh, it was on the shelf of the local video store, RIP Vision Video, by the way, <sighs> they're all gone now in, in Athens. You know, I worked there, right? I did not, but that was definitely the cool spot to work. Yeah. Where, all at... the band folks worked at Vision, like that was where know, you get the best recommendations. And
1: I worked at the downtown Vision Video and I think I've uh, told the story on the show, but it was the cool video store in Athens. It's where my eyes were really opened. Uh, to different kinds of movies, thanks to the dudes that work there. And, uh, yeah, I read that they were closing down. Very sad. Uh, anyway, check it out. Spectacular now. And now we move on to our final segments. As always, stream this and comment card. And this week, uh, I'm just now finishing up, uh, with my wife. We're a little late on this, but we're, we're watching The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. Did you see it? I started. Um,
2: it it it's it's tough and i I was not in the mood for something quite that uh that i hear tough. You. yeah,
1: yeah, it is uh obviously the story from the great uh novel by Margaret Atwood. It is a dystopian uh drama uh slash it's almost a horror movie mm-hmm. in some ways yeah. or a horror you know tale sure uh it's a very tough thing to watch it's not the kind of thing you watch and you're like, oh this you know <laughs> I look forward to watching it every night. But it's so good and well-made that it's almost required viewing, I think, especially in this day and age. Uh, it's amazing that this book was written in the mid-1980s, although I guess it was written during uh, the height of the Cold War and the Reagan administration. Sure. So that's probably where that came from. But all these years later, it's it seems more relevant than ever. Uh, starring Elizabeth Moss, Samira Wiley, Joseph Fines, and Yvonne Strahovsky, among many others. It is uh, depressing. And like Noel said, it's a tough watch. Ultimately, it is a great show, though. And um, I believe they're furthering the story with a season two. Um, And I just read last night, sadly, Margaret Atwood isn't really making much dough on this. She had sold the film rights back in the either 80s or early 90s, and they made a pretty dumb, bad movie version of The Handmaid's Tale. But when you sell... I mean she signed the paper but when you sell the rights like that, it, it wasn't for like a few years or if they make this, it's forever.
2: I think I heard an interview with her on PR though where like the sales of that book are up so much yeah. because of it and she's obviously getting
1: residuals on yeah, that. Yeah, she said so. the book sales are up which is good and that she uh, did get paid some as a uh, consultant mm-hmm. on the on the TV show but – uh, it's not some big windfall of cash for her.
2: Do you know if it's like – are they expanding on the book? Because it seems to stretch it out as much as they have. It couldn't be exact. It's not, I not didn't a super long book. book. But if they're doing a
1: season two, I'm sure that it's yeah. – um, that they're expanding on it. Yeah. But yeah, tough show. But ultimately, um, like I said, worth worth watching. And then finally, we're going to finish up with the comic card segment where I read through some of these uh, emails called from Facebook. So they're not really emails. But you know what I'm saying. Uh, This is from Jonas Billiot. Do you have any deep thoughts on the film versus digital debate? Well, Jonas, I do. I'm going to get Noel's thoughts in a minute too. Um, Here's my thing. When it first started out, I was a bit of a film purist and thought, no, stick with film. It's richer. It looks better. I do have a bit of nostalgia for that uh, clickety-click in the world, the projector in the background. Um, However... Things have progressed such that digital is uh, looks amazing. All of even movies shot on film that there aren't a ton these days are being shown in theaters and on television digitally anyway. So uh, I, I say digital is is the way to go for sure. It it has opened up, um, it's opened up filmmaking to so many more people that would not have that access because let's face it, uh, if you're a, a small little indie filmmaker, the days of Spending tens of thousands of dollars on, uh, cans of film and, uh, transfer and develop, uh, developing this film and processing it. It's just, it made it very cost prohibitive. And now you can go shoot a movie on your iPhone, which, uh, Steven Soderbergh did. I saw the trailer for that thing.
2: Yeah, I think the guy that did the that movie, The Florida Project, that made a big splash this uh-huh. year, um, his first movie, I think it's called Tangerine, shot on knife. I haven't seen that. I've heard great things. Yeah, I, haven't, I haven't seen either of those, but I know he shot Florida Project on
1: film, so it's an interesting yeah. like, dichotomy there or whatever. You know? But uh, it, anything to me that broadens uh, filmmaking and, and democratizes it so people that normally could not make movies can make movies, I am all about it. Uh, I am glad that there are people... That are going out there and shooting film still, that uh, have deep pockets backing them. That's kind of cool, but uh, overall, I don't think there is any debate any longer. Digital is just fine.
2: I think for me, I, I, it makes me really appreciate the craft of like those movies that were shot and edited entirely on film because oh, yeah. you your choices are so much more limited. It's like you Absolutely. you have to get it, get yeah. the shot, get the take, and then cut it by hand or splice it with like on on a block or whatever. Yeah. Today it's like you know we can shoot infinite takes. Yeah. And, you know, pick our selects and make, you know, yep. so many different versions of things. So it really makes me appreciate the way things used to be done. But that being said, the medium isn't limiting the way you behave. I mean, people that worked on film still maybe just do one or two takes and on digital and, and yeah. still have that like artistry and that craft. But it just kind of, makes me think back and, like, how amazing was it that, like, The Godfather, you know, was all shot on film and edited yeah. by hand. And yeah. The sounds – all that stuff blows my mind. But digital is so adaptable and you can make it look however you want. Yeah. If you want it to look really clean or like video or you can make it look like film. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of options there, which I think is ultimately super
1: cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you for sure. And the, the notion of, you know, 24 little pictures in a second um, is just – I kind of romanticize it a little bit. And my, my friend, um, Scotty Ippolito, who named Movie Crush, big shout out, one of my best friends. He's a cameraman here in town and a director of photography. And he will – uh he certainly loves digital. But being on set, he does poo-poo the fact that there are a lot of um, directors now that he doesn't feel like probably are the most talented people mm-hmm. because they're just like – Set up five cameras and shoot it all forever. Yeah. And we'll figure it out later. Mm-hmm. It's not a great approach. Um, yeah. Like you said, the the to have to make choices, like, that's really where you test your metal as a filmmaker, I sure. think. Um, but ultimately, I, I do think it's a good thing.
2: It's the same in music with, like, recording to tape versus recording digital. Yeah. It's like when you're recording on tape… Your take is your take. Yep. That's it. And when you're recording on digital, you can do just splice things together and yeah. do infinite takes and all that. So it's like now, in the same way the film, like when people record in studio, a lot of times they'll record some stuff on tape, like uh-huh. drums. They'll record it on tape and then everything else they'll record in Pro
1: Tools on digital or whatever. So uh-huh. it's like a hybrid of the two. You know, huh. It's interesting. Very interesting. All right. So thanks, Jonas, for that. Great question. Um Colin Maydahl, here's your question. Any thoughts on the potential Tarantino Star Trek movie? And did you see Colossal? Uh, I'll go backwards here. I did not see Colossal yet, but I've heard it's really, really great, and I can't wait to see it. Um, For those of you who don't know, it's the uh, Anne Hathaway movie that kind of flew under the radar. Um, And the premise sounds really kind of nuts that there's this this giant monster terrorizing some other part of the world uh, that she is seeing on television, on the news, and somehow – she links up and is able to control that monster. It sounds nutty. It's a weird concept. Did you I see like it? it? No, I just, I heard
2: the concept alone just kind of made me, you know, turn my head. That's, that's an interesting one. Never heard anything quite like that.
1: Yeah, but I mean, all the reviews are just off the charts, so I definitely want to see it. Um, as far as the Tarantino Star Trek movie, I think everyone knows my stance on Tarantino, which is I loved him. Um, and now I'm a little wary of him. I think his movies are way too long now and pretty indulgent um, with the scripts. Having said that, I will still see anything Tarantino puts out because I feel like I should and have to. Uh, he is one of the essential filmmakers of our day. Um, but, I you know, his past few movies I just I haven't loved. As far as Star Trek goes, I am not uh, – I've never been a Star Trek dude. Didn't watch the TV show. I've only seen – a couple of the various iterations of the films over the years um that were fine but as a non star trek person it's hard to really get super into it so i don't really have a uh a take as far as no you can't do that to star trek because i don't it's not a beloved thing like that i think it is a very interesting idea to see what tarantino would do with any any iconic uh property and franchise like this um he's never done sci-fi at all of course do you
2: think he's just getting bored, or do you think he just, like, really just had know. a bang-up idea that he just like, I've <laughs> got to do this. This has to be done. Never knew that he was a Trekkie. That's interesting.
1: No, I mean, but is this literally going to be a Star Trek movie where they're having these long Tarantino-esque digressions about uh, what? food menus? S- Star Trek is a talky show. Yeah. You know
2: what I mean? Not a whole lot of action on, like, Next Generation. People are going to ding me for that. I'm sure there's way more I don't. I don't watch the show, but it always seemed to me to be a bit more of, like, a people- having conversations in space you know maybe it'll work
1: I don't know I don't know well I will I will certainly check that out Um, I'm a Star Wars guy not that you have to be one or the other but obviously way into Star Wars so if Tarantino did a Star Wars movie I would be super worried Mm. actually yeah
0: have you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall in a therapist's office and get a behind the scenes look at what they're really thinking I'm Lori Gottlieb. I'm a psychotherapist, and I write the Dear Therapist advice column for The Atlantic.
2: Hey, I'm Guy Winch. I'm a psychologist, and I write the Dear Guy advice column for TED.
0: And we're the hosts of a new show on the iHeartRadio podcast network called Dear Therapists.
2: Think of it as an advice column in the form of a podcast, except we talk to you.
0: But it doesn't stop there. One of the most frustrating things for us as advice columnists is that no one gets to hear what happened and how things turned out.
2: But on our show, you will. We ask listeners to test drive our advice and come back on to give us an update.
0: So, if you'd like to talk with us about a problem, big or small, send us an email at advice at iHeartMedia.com.
2: We can't wait to get you on our couch.
0: Guy, they'll be calling in.
2: Yeah, but they could
1: be sitting on a couch. Finally, Simon Workman. Uh, this Hello, is a- Simon. Oh, do
2: you really? Yeah, he's, we met him actually. We went for car stuff. We went to Ohio and, uh, he took us out to dinner. And no he, way. Yeah, he gave us each a bag of coffee from the coffee roastery. works at. He just got his like PhD in Sherlock Holmes mythos what? lore or whatever. That's a yeah. thing? Yeah, yeah. It's like the, the, um, like things like the poisons and, uh, like remedies that are in Sherlock Holmes. He wrote like his, uh, doctoral thesis on that.
1: That sounds like a rap lyric. I got yeah. a PhD in Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. He's a cool guy. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Simon. Well, that's awesome. Um, this is a great question too, Noel. So you think about this while I answer. Uh, what do you think is the best use of a song in a movie? So not, uh, what he's asking about is the best music cue, essentially. Uh, and if you're not down with the lingo, music cue is, when you know, something happens in the movie and that song turns on, um, so he's not talking about just the soundtrack. This is tough, but I have a few I want to lay out there. I really thought about this long and hard last night. Um, we, we just talked about it with the Dave Willis episode on Bottle Rocket, uh, 2000 Man, the Rolling Stone song in Bottle Rocket at the end when uh, they've done the break-in at the, at the warehouse. Just one of the great music cues of all times. Um, really, really good one. Uh, I'm also going to go with, uh, These Days from the Royal Tannenbaums. Amazing. Great, great music it's cue. So good. When it ramps into that slow-mo, yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow gets off the bus and that sweet song by Velvet Underground and Nico. Or maybe that was just Nico. Was it Velvet Underground? That's that? just Nico, I believe. Okay. I think. You know not yeah. wrote that song. I don't. Jackson Brown. I did not know that. Yeah. There are a lot of great versions of that song, including Jackson Brown, and Greg Allman has a really great, great version. But, for my money, Nico's is the best, and that's a great music cue. Uh, and then a few more here, uh, the triumvirate from Boogie Nights, the Sister Christian, Jesse's Girl, 99 Luft Balloons sequence in Boogie Nights. Is where he's best. throwing the firecrackers, uh, and like, that is the tensest shit I've ever seen in my life. So great. Oh. Alfred Molina, uh, oh, what a great, great scene. And that's, like, a triple music cue just nailed by P.T. Anderson. Um, tiny Dancer and Almost Famous. Little Schmaltzy. Yeah. With a sing-along on the bus. But I buy it. You know why Those, those, that one is similar to the Boogie Nights one in that the music is in the
2: scene. It's, uh-huh. like, interacted with. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's yeah. not just, like, on the soundtrack. Like, the character is singing right. the song. It's playing on the stereo. Yeah. They're singing it in the in the bus or whatever. I like I like that. Yeah. That's, like,
1: music as a character almost, you know? Absolutely. Um I just bought my Elton John tickets for his farewell tour, by the way. Can't wait. Uh, uh Layla and Goodfellas from Derek and the Dominoes, Eric Clapton's band. Such a great, great music cue in Goodfellas.
2: I have a more favorite one from Goodfellas. It's when they're being chased by the helicopter and it's Harry
1: Nelson jumping oh, to the fire. Yeah. That's amazing. That is, well, Martin Scorsese is one of the all-time great music Master. cue artists. Yes, big time. Of all time. Uh, and then finally, um, from Fight Club at the very end, uh, Where's My Mind by the Pixies just a great song and when I first saw Fight club in the theater it it I was one of those dudes it blew my mind uh and at the very end when they come back together mm-hmm. and those buildings are exploding yeah. and they had that great shot from behind and wheres my mind starts it's just fucking fantastic I have friends that say
2: that one doesn't hold up but uh, I loved it so much fight club or the or the fight cute- club some I have some friends that just don't. They say it's a little, they give them the, the machismo of it. This a little cloying. It was kind of, a when movie of it its day, yeah, for yeah. sure. But uh, I, I will still watch it and enjoy it. I had I didn't know the Pixies, so I heard that song. Oh wow! And I was like, "What the fuck is this?" I uh-huh. have to find what this is immediately, and then wow. I got into the Pixies because of that song.
1: Awesome, yeah, amazing, very cool. All right, thank you, Simon Workman, and hello again from Noel. But. Uh, that wraps it up for this week, everyone. So, as always, I want to uh, let you know about this Friday show, so you can watch it this week. Uh, ben Acker on Miller's Crossing. Uh, ben is, as you will, as you will find, is one of my good friends out in Los Angeles, and uh, we had a long, long conversation about one of my favorite movies of all time, Miller's Crossing. And the only reason Ben and I didn't talk for eight hours about this is because we wanted to go to dinner and continue talking about Miller's Crossing. We should have just kept the microphones going the whole time. But uh, look forward to Ben Acker on Miller's Crossing, Coen Brothers movie. Check it out this week so you can crush out on Friday with us. Uh, thanks, Noel, for everything. Yeah, man. And we will see you all next week.
0: Welcome to Teach Me Something New, a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Brit Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. This show is about inspirational thinkers, scientists, artists, and CEOs, and the things they've learned that have transformed their lives. I'm tasking these world-class experts to teach me something new in less than an hour. Listen to Teach Me Something New on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Joe Levy, and on the latest episode of Inside the Studio, I sat down with one of the all-time great singer-songwriters, James Taylor. We talked about his new album, where his music comes from, and how telling his life story through his songs has helped him.
1: Music saved my life, but I was lucky also to survive. I did some very stupid, some, some years that were, were just really high risk, unnecessarily so. And a lot of
0: people around us died, you know. So join me, Joe Levy, editor-at-large at at Billboard, for this and other in-depth conversations with the biggest artists in music. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts.